Joining us in prayer this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you open our ears and our hearts to hear what you have in store for us for the past day that is a powerful way getting our your message and our good job. I pray the same thing later this morning for Ryan. Lord, we look forward to listening to you and have a story for us. And we just thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I thought we'd start in Psalm 8 this morning. insignificance, because it definitely talks to a, an order and a place, um, actually God gives us significance in this psalm. Uh, and that he, you know, what is man that you would take thought of him? Because we are insignificant, right? And that we aren't God. Uh, and yet, he's crowned us with glory and majesty. And he's uh, created us to rule over the works of his hands. So, in that sense, we're not insignificant. But at the same time, we need to recognize our place. Mm -hmm. I think that's your point, right? Mm -hmm. 
What other kind of things pop out at you? Well, where where do you? Yeah, I know. Where do you where do you first see "son of man" used in the in the Bible? Uh, I'll I'll give you a hint. The word the word man. Hebrew is the same, it can be one of two words. It can be the word Adam, which we would translate a formal name, or it can be Ish, which is a kind of a generalized name. But anyway, so uh, son of man would be son of Adam. Right? Uh, but we also understand this to potentially talk about one who is also called the Son of Man in reference to um, a nature that he has that is both divine and human. So the Son of God, Son of Man. And it's interesting that you would bring that up. Uh, I realize I may not be... Uh, tell me if I'm on the right track of what you were talking about, Son of Man being significant for a description of one of, um, of of Christ's nature. Is that what you were alluding to? I was just noticing it says Son of Man, which I know would refer to Jesus. And that yes, yeah. So talking about the, the nature of the Christ, um, it also uses uh, two words here. It says, O Lord, our Lord. Just like in Psalm 110. It says, The Lord said to my Lord. So you have two names of God in there. You have uh, Yahweh, the name that uh, they would never speak, is talking about the transcendent God, and Adonai, the uh, imminent God, God with us. Doug? There's two phrases that I never can get from the Lord God. That's why it's very interesting in what you said. And one is so one, and the angel of the Lord are two things that, depending on who you ask, dictates an answer. And so I definition of son of man, my ears picked right up, because I understand that, because there's places in the Bible where preachers have preached and says son of man were referred to human man. Yes. So I write man, human. Right. And then the next preacher comes along and no, no, that's not man, that's Jesus. Referring, that's an Old Testament reference to Jesus. Yes. And so and I suffer from that confusion very much. And you don't want to be in a Baptist group. Use the wrong interpretation. You're in a Baptist group. You want to get the interpretation. I would say it's not so much the person that you're listening to as the context that you're looking at. Because it should be clear from the context whether it's referring to the son of Adam. Context so it depends on the individuals interpreting the verse. And, and what you're referring to there is that we all approach the Bible interpretation with certain biases. And uh, if you ask a Jew to read that, you have different biases than a Christian. And a Jew would probably more clearly read, well, son of Adam. Uh, because they don't believe that Son of Man is expressive of the Godhead, Christ, Messiah. 
Um, so we clearly have a Christological focus when we read the Bible. We think the whole Bible is about Christ, right? and I agree. Uh, and so we need to, that's where you might get some confusion, because I would say that this can be both referring to the son of Adam and Christ, the Messiah. The reason I say that, um, and I, I say that it would be son of man, is because what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And when you look at that, the interpreters made a judgment, and I'm reading out of the NAS, NASB. Um, they made an interpretive judgment, and it's all lowercase. So if they were talking about a divine title, they would have raised the case on it. Um, and so you'll see that, for example, in the New Testament, in an NASB, where they make an interpretive judgment and they capitalize Son of Man. So here, then it goes on and says, uh, you make him to rule, or you have made him a little lower than God. Or the actual word there is the angels. So if you're talking about the Son of Man, Christ, then he would be a little lower than the angels because as his, uh, uh, in his incarnation, God becoming man, he actually was subordinate in creation order to the angels. Just for that period of time. that period of time. So God became man and, and was subordinate to the angels. But an interpretive judgment was made here that this son of man was talking about humanity um, because they put in, made him a little lower than God. How many in your Bibles have a little lower than God? In verse 5 of the song. And so lower than the heavenly beings. Lower than the heavenly beings. That would be lower than angels. Uh, uh, Mitch read uh, lower than God. Yes. Yeah. But 6 and 7 definitely drives home the fact that it's son of Adam. Yes. And, and so I would say that this psalm in particular is talking about uh, the son of Adam and the creation order where we fit. And I would base that on, uh, on context, but you see that that context is also reflected in certain interpretive judgment. What psalm was this again? Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And, and you're welcome to disagree with me, because I, you know, I mean, I, I, this, this is an area where um, we're going to see it used in Hebrews today. It's not a matter of disagreeing because you're right. <laughs> I try to be. It's, just, it's, it's being able to run into this phrase throughout the Bible. And a lot of times, not understanding totally who's speaking or what the context is. Right. Who's, this, who's the writer referring to? That's my question. Right, and because I realize it goes both ways, and it does take a lot of wrestling and familiarity to try and understand context, because sometimes the context isn't just localized; it's thematic. Yeah. So, are one of the gospels he's, he's called the Son of Man or the Son of you know, I mean, is Yes. One of the gospels where it's actually is more reference than than that than the others. Is that what I remember, or is it? Yes. And then, um, so, does anybody know which gospel refers to Jesus' as son? Yeah. So, and, and there's one that refers to him as the son of God more than the son of man. And they're both emphasizing different aspects of Messiah and, and what, who he is. 
So we want to understand, of, uh, number one, since our salvation depends upon God's grace and His work on our behalf in Christ. And I would say that this is an evangelical distinctive. So if you call yourself an evangelical Christian, which is uh, a good percentage of the Protestant denomination, um, then you would say that that statement is true. Our salvation depends upon what God has done on our behalf in Christ. So we don't bring anything to salvation. What Luther said is we are saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace means that it's God's work on our behalf. So we have, need to understand who it is that does that work and what the work was. And that's what Hebrews is about. So we want to be really clear on who Christ is. So when, when we look at, and this, this psalm is going to be quoted today by the, the author of Hebrews in this sermon. I believe that what is being referenced here in Psalm 8 is a clear case for who man is. Because we want to understand who we are, and then we want to understand who Christ is and how he is like us. Does that make sense? Because we know that God became man. That's the story we hear. This is the good news, the gospel. That he entered into history on our behalf and solved a problem that we couldn't solve. He, he conquered death. He saved us from the, the consequence of sin. And not only did he save us from the consequence of sin, he actually saves us from sin itself. And that we get translated into his kingdom. And that we have a place with God in his presence as a result of what Christ has done. And that's where we're going to develop that as we move through Hebrews and we talk about the high priest and what the high priest does for the people. Right? So this part here is about, I believe in Psalm 8, about who man is. What do we know about man? Who can tell me what you know? And you can, you can tell me what you know from a naturalistic perspective or from a theological perspective. Depraved. Pardon? Depraved. Man is depraved. So what are you referring to when you say man is depraved? <laughs> Fallen. Fallen. Okay. So uh, what does it mean to be fallen? Not high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were at the top, now you're at the bottom. <laughs> so so the, the power of the preposition there. Um, what you're referring to, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, is that man um, has a moral component or a moral nature. I say component, I mean it's part of his essence, his being. So man is moral. What else do we know about man? It's made in God's image. It's made in God's image. What does is, what is God look like that man is made in his image? Does God have fingers and toes and God, God's eyeballs? Moral. Pardon? God is moral. God is moral. God is a moral being. God is also a spiritual being. So, when it talks about uh, that we're created in the image of God, we actually express some of God's character. Um, I'll ask you a question. Is everything that you see God? In other words, is God the, 
the beam has got the, the metal has got the light no but it's an expression of who God is right because he's the creator when an artist paints a picture he's expressing using a medium something that is inside of him so what you see in creation is an expression of God that's why we say that there is a general revelation of God. God makes himself known in creation. Paul makes that argument in Romans chapter 1. He's talking about the, how revelation uh, occurs to every person. So we're without excuse. We can't claim there is no God because look around you. That's basically what he says. So humanity is part of that expression of God. So we have a character that is like God. We have a character in that we're spiritual, that we're moral, that we are creative, and that we uh, were created with a purpose. What's the purpose that man was created for? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. <laughs> and that comes from? Catechism. That's right. <laughs> That's Catechism. That's correct. Where do you find that in the Bible? Well, well I'm sure it's there, son. <laughs> so this is, I mean, increasing. Yes. I. Oh, she's a catechism. Yeah, yeah, catechism. And I would say that that's true because of the way that um, God created humanity. He created us for relationship. How do I know that that's true? Anybody want to tell me from the Bible? Came down and talked to Adam and Eve. He talked to Adam and Eve. And he created Adam and Eve. He created them male and female. He created them for community. To exist in community, to, and when I say exist in community, in other words, you have no life apart from being connected to community. Now, there are those that would, you know, go hide out in Idaho somewhere, like I want to do once in a while. Um, but that's not the way that we're designed. We're designed to be in communion, in relationship. God is in relationship himself. His very nature is relationship. How do we know that? That's right. We, we speak of God in relationship as a triune being. One essence, three persons. That there is a communion of God. Before he created, he spoke. And, and the creation came through his speaking. And that that wasn't something that God had never done. In the sense that he had that relationship and communion. And it was actually the relationship that brought forth everything that was created. Through the Son. By the Spirit. Right? We read that in the Bible. So, man is created for a relationship. He's created moral. He's a spiritual being. He has a physical expression whereby he can interact with creation. So man is created in the image of God. Pretty amazing. What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. 
That's a pretty amazing description of who we are. So when I look at the different worldviews and perspectives, I said you could describe man to me from any perspective, from any worldview, naturalist perspective, um, which we understand that from a naturalist perspective, which really kind of came out of the Enlightenment period, the world is viewed as a big machine. Creation is a big machine, and man is here to master the machine. That we can do anything. We can put a man on the moon if we can master the machine. So yesterday, I, uh, I watched Apollo 13 because when I, I get in this place where I just kind of need to crawl in my cave and go to sleep for a while, I put on movies that have great quotes in them, and it has some great quotes. One of them is, failure is not an option. <laughs> you've ever seen the movie and you know the story um, where you've got three men that through no fault of their own find themselves in probably one of the most precarious positions they could have imagined at that point in time surviving uh, in a disabled spacecraft as it's hurling out into space towards the moon and uh, there is a team of people that are totally powerless uh, except in what they can bring to bear in that instant in engineering to help bring these guys back. Ultimately, it's up to the hand of God. But the, the um, Gene, Gene Krantz, I think that's his name, who is the flight director, um, in trying to describe the situation that these men were in, he said, you know, these men are not going to die on my watch. Failure is not an option. That's what God said when it came to the redemption of man. Failure is not an option. Another one of my, yeah, failure is not an option. This is really important when you understand who the person of God is and what the work that he's done on our behalf. Failure is not an option. He's willing to go the whole distance. And he has gone the whole distance. And he has. And we speak of salvation as both accomplished and not yet. And we're going to see that kind of, uh, it's present, and yet there's a future aspect to what God is doing. He's continuing to work in the world to affect salvation, not just for us and our sanctification and ultimately glorification, but also for all of humanity. Failure is not an option. Um, what are some of the other great quotes in there? Anybody seen the movie? No, I don't remember the quote. No. I'll probably think of the one that I was I was just before I got caught up that it was not an option. Just because I, I see that as such a profound statement about who God is and what he's doing on our behalf. Failure is not an option. And when I see that, oh, I know what it was. Um, at the very beginning of the movie, um, Jim Lovell is sitting with his wife, and uh, he's pondering his future flight. He's supposed to be on Apollo 14. And uh, he's looking up at the moon with his wife, and he does this thing with his thumb, right? He blots out the moon. And when he's circling the moon, he blots out the earth, right, to show perspective, of where we sit in God's creation. And I don't know if you don't know anything about Jim Lovell and his family, but um, 
they're, they're Christian folk. And he was the one that uh, spoke the Genesis passage in Apollo 8 that uh, because of, there was a, a lawsuit against it so that they couldn't quote for in future space missions the Bible. Mm. But anyway, so Jim Lovell is sitting there looking at the moon and he said, I'm going to go to the moon. And he said, you know, this isn't a miracle. We're doing it because we can. We want to. In other words, he has a naturalistic perspective. And a lot of times we have this perspective. And it comes from this, this psalm. We have been created in dominion over creation. The difference is, is that we don't own it. Right? When God put us in dominion over his creation, he didn't put us as owners. He didn't give us the title and say, okay, the earth's yours. You can do it because you want. Rather, he gave us a delegated authority. He said, you can do it because I asked you to. That's who humanity is. Humanity is moral, spiritual, um, and has a purpose that is given by God to care for his creation as he would. That's how we were created. What happened? Well, let's read in Hebrews. That's what we're about. We've been talking about uh, Messiah. We've been talking about the Son of God. And uh, we know that because the author uh, introduces that at the very beginning. He says this is all about his Son. That God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a, a complete expression of what God is about in revealing himself. The Son who the Son is, and what the Son's work is. And now he's going to unpack that for us all the way through as we go through Hebrews. And as we look at chapter 1, the first thing we looked at was what the Son, as the Son of God, means. Who is the Son of God? That he is part of the Godhead. That he is the expressed revealer of God. Think about that. God gave his word, he gave his, his, he revealed himself in creation, he reveals himself in his word, right? We understand that the word was given to prophets and to Moses and to others in various portions and in many ways, but in these last times, he's spoken to us in his son, the perfect revelation of God to humanity, right? And we, he says that this, this son is the son of God. He's the actual radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. And we see that in the first part of, of chapter 1, um, he's revealed as the son of God in, uh, in heaven. Then there's a warning, which we talked about last week, that we need to pay attention to. For this reason, we must, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Incredible uh, warning passage. 
given that the Christ, the Messiah, is revealed as the Son of God, who is revealing God himself to us, um, we should not neglect that. Now, what the author's going to do is develop uh, the Christ, Messiah, as the Son of Man. So we understand that this one, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is both God, and now we're going to see he's, he's man. And this is an answer to the most fundamental heresies that occur regarding Messiah. Either he's not God or he's not man. And so the author, in his, before he even starts talking about the work, he wants us to understand the person of Christ. And so this morning we're going to read through and we're going to develop uh, how he's revealed as the Son of Man. We read in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For he did not subject to angels the world <coughs> the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But he has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, that through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who suffers and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children whom God has given. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So what you see here is a transition from a description of the Messiah as the Son of God to the Messiah as a son of man and the kinship that he has with man. And he concludes with the transition to the role of the high priest. Yes? Okay, so the, this is the first of several warnings? The, in right. chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Okay, so what, what exactly is the warning? <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to get this down. Yep. The, the warning and then, is um, that... Okay. After that, mm -hmm. this is interesting to what the, the author talks like me. Says, you know, somewhere it's quoted. Yeah. Blah blah blah. And he yeah. Gets stuff. Why didn't he give us chapter and verse? Why didn't he give us chapter and verse? 
Well, okay, so the warning precedes the section on um, Messiah as fully human, Revelation as Son of Man. And the, the warning is in regard to revelation that was given from heaven about God and that we shouldn't neglect it. Neglecting the great salvation. Right. Neglecting uh, the revelation of God. In other words, the Son has spoken. And the, the Son of God has spoken. So the, the warning is in reference to that which came before, which is in chapter 1, the revelation of the Son of God uh, that he is seated at the right hand of God, uh, that he is fully God. He says, my son, uh, you are my son today, I have begotten you. I will be a father to him, he shall be a son to me. So it's talking about relationships, talking about sonship. Give you warning in one sentence. Warning in one sentence. Um, Isn't it verse 2, I mean, chapter 2, yeah. verse 1? Warning in one sentence. That we can lose our God's superior revelation. This is the warning right here. Do not disregard God's superior revelation. So using uh, a series of superlatives in his dis, um, his sermon, as he develops it, he's always going from lesser to greater type of argument style, at least in the initial part. Um, the warning passage is this. Don't disregard it. It's a superior revelation to all other revelations that could have been get, given. It didn't come in a Cracker Jack box. So he's saying like, And and that would be um, possibly one of the hearers, but I believe that this was written to the church, that it isn't written to unbelievers as much as it is written to believers. They're Hebrew Christians, definitely. They're Jewish Christians. And so one of the uh, so he uses a lot of the language from what they know of Judaism and God to express more fully God's plan and purpose to them. Uh, but I wouldn't say that they're unbelievers. Although th- that's one of the questions we get into when we get into these warning passages. Are these warnings to people that don't don't believe or people that do believe? Uh, this is about 200 yards to the west of us. Yep. Is a place whose happy hunting ground is among particularly Baptists mm-hmm. who don't comprehend their own doctrine. Correct. And so, you know, the Christians need to have the gospel preached to them as well. Yes. So that they don't fall for that down there. That's correct. If you, if you don't have an anchor in the fundamentals of your faith, which is who Christ is and what he's done and what he is doing and how you're participating in that, if you don't have that those fundamentals down, you will drift. You will be subject to drifting. And that's what it says here. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. And, uh, and there's a lot of drifting going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about um, really 
high-minded uh, theology or philosophy that you need a PhD in order to comprehend. In fact, when we get over to chapter 5 and 6, he makes that really clear. And that... Uh, I'll just, I'm going to read ahead because this is one of my favorite passages in Hebrews. In chapter 5, verse 11, through the end of the chapter, it says, Concerning him, we have much to say, that is the Son. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So it's the hearer's lack of uh, understanding fundamentals that they can't even talk about the basics of Christianity. It says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you had, have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. <coughs> for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. That's what this is about. This is about getting your senses trained, growing up as a Christian, so that it's, you're not eating milk all the time, that you're able to eat meat, then that you're not only able to nourish yourself and your own body and growth, but you're able to nourish others and their body and growth, <clears throat> that you're able to contribute to the church. And that's what there's, when we get to the latter part of Hebrews, that's what it's going to focus on, contributing to the church body, both as leaders and followers. And what that means. But we need to understand the elementary oracles of God first. Who is, who is Messiah? Who is Christ? And why is Jesus that one? And what has he done on our behalf? Right? We celebrated Easter last week. That's all about what he has done on our behalf. And who he is. And so the warning is... God is declaring to us who he is and what he's doing in his son. Pay attention. That applies to all of us. Yes, sir. So, in, in verse 3, yep. two, yep. uh, it says that uh, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So what is neglecting? I'm still struggling with it. The drifting away. And, yep. I mean, there's a warning here, and I, I'm not positive that I necessarily buy your one sentence here. <laughs> That's okay. Because it doesn't it's, talk it's not about for this salvation that it talks about <coughs> in verse 3. It's, it's uh, repeat your last statement? Well, okay. The, the warning, or the summation thing, which I, lo I love yep. this, by the way. Thanks for doing this. Yep. I know it took a lot of study to do it. But it doesn't talk about, that's not, it's talking about revelation, and this is talking about salvation. What is the revelation about? about so God. the revelation is about who God is, who man is, how man has, by his own um, rebellion, placed himself in an eternal predicament that leads to death. Okay. That's the revelation. And that God believes that failure is not an option. He is going to redeem his creation. 
He's going to go to the ultimate extreme of creation, within creation itself, to redeem that which was lost. But uh, there is an option for a whole lot of people. <laughs> and and that's, it, why, that's why we need to not neglect the right. greatest salvation. Made a way of escape, I guess. So that's the, that's yeah. the and it's not just that God made a way of escape. He actually pursues us. So it's not like, and, and some would say, uh, in a deistic um, perspective on uh, Revelation, they would say, well, God is the great watchmaker. He created the watch, and he wound it up and set it in motion and then walked away. That's not what's happening here. What God is revealed as is one who didn't just walk away, but actually became part of creation itself in order to come to us, to show us who he is, to show us who we are and how lost we are, and actually died our death to show us that, took our sin upon himself, and then was raised on the third day. So that is an incredible revelation of what God is doing for us. So thinking about the context again, this is written to Hebrews, we believe, believing Yes, Jews. Jewish Christians. <laughs> so... The warning is really about um, them thinking that salvation is cheap or something, and then so then all this um, first two three chapters is about how Christ is superior to well, angels and etc. I would say that uh, because when we get to chapter eleven of Hebrews, what you're going to find is that there are those that believed in God's redemptive program before Christ was ever revealed as a person, before Samuel was ever written to use the word the anointed one, which we get Messiah from, before the king was ever revealed, and before prophets ever had a place, all there was was a priest, so there was a recognition of God. And he's even going to talk about the priest in here. We're going to talk about Melchizedek, right? That all that was established at that point in history, in the point of Abraham that I'm, I'm referring to, was one of the parts of God's administration. And yet Abraham believed in God's redemptive program because God promised him. God made a promise. And what you're going to find in chapter 11, which sometimes we call the Hall of Faith, uh, because the heroes of our faith are listed just, you know, uh, in staccato, just bump, 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 bump. You know, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. All of these died without the full revelation. How much greater revelation do we have? That's the statement at the end of chapter 11, right? And so I would say that it's not that, um, that uh, the Judaism neglects doesn't have this message of salvation and that we do. They had the same message that Abraham had. That God saves and that's what he's about doing. And that you can trust him to save you or you can try and figure it out on your own. What are the other choices? There is no other God. And that's what Judaism proclaims. What is the Shema Yisrael? The Lord our God is one. Right? 
There is no other God. And so, even if they were Jews and not Christians, this message would apply. So I say that it is to a broader audience, but it's specifically to those who are Christians that don't embrace their Christianity for what it really means. And I would say that there are some in the church today that may be looking like a Christian, and but that doesn't mean that they smell and quack like a Christian. Right? You know, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. Well, I would say that there are some that come and actually occupy space in a church and maybe serve in ministries that don't really understand what their faith and salvation is about. And the reason why is because we hear a lot of things that are tradition. In catechisms, for example, that are to reflect deeper truths, but they have no idea where the deeper truth came from or some cases what the deeper truth is. And what this warning is, is to pay attention to that revelation. Really wrestle with it. Really understand it. If we have questions that the man Jesus was not really a full man, because he, if he's God, he can't be man, we need to wrestle with that. We need to understand it. No, 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 no. He is a man. Just like me, in the sense of what he has to wrestle with and what he's tempted with. That God didn't pull out his God card when he was tempted in, after 40 days of fasting in the desert. He didn't pull out his God card, although Satan tempted him to. Right? He's fully human and suffered as we suffer. And as a result of that, he was perfected, or he completed the work which God sent him to do, which was to redeem humanity in humanity's place. He took our sins upon himself, which only God-man could do. So there are those that would deny the humanity of Christ. And this goes back to the very first century. They're called the Docetics. He appeared to be human, but he wasn't really human. He just appeared to be. Docetism, which became another form of what you might have heard of a heresy, called Gnosticism. That, that God really wasn't human flesh and that you have to have a special revelation of God to get to him and that that revelation is not Christ, is not a man that's Gnosticism it's heresy and there are many today that would say yeah, yeah, I've heard about this Jesus but he's a superman he's not like me guess what, Christ is fully human and that's what this is saying but also, Christ is fully God, because that's the other side of this heresy. Well, if he's fully human, he can't be God. Now, how can, how can um, a human be God? You don't become God, right? That's another heresy, that there are those that are human, and if you just work a program just right, you'll become God. In fact, the LSD church down the road here is that way, right? So, that would be a form of heresy. Now, can we fully comprehend this? I'll, I'll get to you. Um, can we comprehend that God um, is fully God and fully man? That's what we have to wrestle with. If he wasn't fully God, there is no salvation for us. He can't hold us in his hand. Because there are those that are going to squirm 
right? <laughs> but if he's if he's not fully man, how can he actually suffer in our place? This is the puzzle. And yet it's what we believe. He's and guess what? They have a word for that in the Bible. It's called one of a kind. And it's translated in English as only begotten. You ever read that phrase? The only begotten of the Father. You read it in John chapter 1. That's that, that's that phrase that describes fully God, fully man. The Word was God, and the Word became flesh. He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the one of a kind, unique. There is no other Christ. That's why Christ could say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the gate. There is no other gate. Wide is the way that we lead to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to salvation. That's all of this language that we read in the New Testament is about this one who is fully God and fully man. And the author of Hebrews is trying to unpack that for us. Uh, is when you look at what's in the old, what we call the Old Testament, go back to Genesis 3, and the promises made about the seed of the woman. She's not going to have anything but a human offspring. Right. When Isaiah gives his prophecy, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And notice the name he gives. You will call his name Emmanuel. Yeah. God with us. Yes. That is about as subtle as a punch in the nose. Right. You know, over and over, God says throughout the whole Old Testament that the anointed one, the Messiah, is going to be a man, a human being, and that he's going to be God. Yes. And, and that's why the, the, what ultimately they convicted Jesus of was heresy. When they asked him, are you the son of God? He says, yes, I am. Right. Because they even said what the crime was. You, being a man, make yourself God. They accused him of that. And what answer did he have but the truth? And that's what he said. I come to give you the truth. This is the revelation of God to humanity. He wants us to know the truth, both of who he is and who we are, and the predicament that we find ourselves in, and the work that he's done to rescue us. And those words are used in the Bible. Yes? Uh, in verse 9, um, it's a little perplexing to me, because I would think that Jesus is higher than the angels. Ah. And this is saying that he's lower, but was that just for the time that he was here as man? Yes, and you'll notice that um, it does say for a little while. Yeah. And that, okay, um, so stepped down. Is, 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 I thought he was fully God here, too. He is, he is fully God. This is challenging stuff. Is it because Well, and it actually talks about that in uh, Philippians. Paul does. Let's deal with Hebrews first. Oh yeah. <laughs> so let me well, let me just read out of Philippians because Paul was wrestling with this too. It's like Paul, great rhetorician, right? He's a lawyer. 
He knows how to lawyer things and understands the law. He's a Jew of Jews. And this is what he says regarding the God-man. Right? He says, um, in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, we wrestle with this verse, and so will the Jehovah's Witnesses and others, because it's talking about the divinity of the man Jesus. Right? Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't steal anything from God in claiming that he was God, because he is God. That's what Paul's saying. And he's trying to use the language to express that. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Now, those that are docetic in their view and say, well, no, he only kind of looks like a human. He's not really human. They would say, made in the likeness of man is not being a real man. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, no, 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 no. He's fully God, fully man. Let's have this attitude of humility within us. That God would stoop this low, leave his, leave his throne, enter creation as a baby in uh, a manger surrounded by poop and other things, right? I mean, we live in a pretty crappy world, and that's what God came into, right? That's who, that's how much he cares. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's what Paul was saying. Now, that's why some would say, oh, well, Hebrews must have been written by Paul, because this looks like Pauline theology to me. No, it's the theology that God has given us throughout the Bible, trying to explain who he is to us. We are not God. And it even says that. It says, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are so much higher than ours as the heavens are above the earth. That's what it says in Isaiah 55, right? So... This isn't new theology. This is foundational theology. And we need to pay attention to it. That Jesus, the anointed, the one of a kind, only begotten of the Father, is both fully divine and fully human. And that in his full humanity, he is able to actually redeem those who have the sentence of death and have feared it and are captive to it. That's what he says. We are captive to death. We are its prisoner. And he has set us free. We are no longer bound in fear. And that in that, he is serving as a high priest. So he's giving a transitionary uh, statement from who Christ is into what Christ does. That's what the author is trying to do. He's very compact in the way that he develops this. But nonetheless, that's the direction he's going. Understand who Christ is? Now, let's understand what he's done. And what he is doing. And then what is our obligation? How now shall we live? Right? So I'm gonna, I, I realize I've given you... A, it's like drinking from a fire hose, right? Um, <laughs> wrestle with it. Do not neglect this revelation. This is a great salvation that we have. And uh, we'll end with that. Lord, I just thank you for what you've done on our behalf, that you are the king. Um, 
that you do sit uh, with your Father in the throne in heaven, that you intervene on our behalf, that you came all the way to the lowest parts of the earth to redeem us, that you care for us that much. Lord, um, there is none like you. And so we, we join with the, the psalmist in claiming that. Lord, we just ask that you would uh, continue to challenge us. As I know Tim is wrestling with this and others in this room are wrestling with it. Um, Lord, help us to really um, wrestle well with this. That your Holy Spirit would convict us and shine light where uh, he needs to shine light. That you would help us to really make some progress through these fundamental doctrines, Lord. That we can be on solid ground that we can give a testimony to others that would like to know who you are and what you've done for them in a very difficult time in the world. Lord, you've called us here for this purpose, and it's a great purpose. Um, it's a hard purpose and challenging. Lord, we just ask for your blessing, your equipping. Um, Lord, we thank you for your service to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We ask that you be with Ryan this morning as he delivers your message uh, to those some who will never heard, uh, Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit work effectively in their heart, that you would also uh, mature our faith this day in that which we hear from you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of this we pray in your name. Amen.